0: I'm Marique Hardy, and I'm going to die. And so are you. And so is everybody you know. Uh, If there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that this life we're sharing together is absolutely finite. So why don't we take a moment to celebrate it? Join me on an emotional, occasionally chaotic, life-affirming deep dive into mortality. I'll speak to a variety of interesting, beautiful, imperfect humans who are all definitely going to die, Soz, and help them plan their dream funerals as they reflect on their lives, their longings, their fantasy eulogists, and how best we can all navigate this weird ride we're on together. Writer, podcaster, model, presenter and survivor. Holly Madison lived for nearly a decade in the wildly surreal surrounds of the Playboy mansion. I mean, initially she was a girlfriend in residence, and then eventually she was the number one wife of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner. Since leaving the mansion in 2008, she's done a bajillion things, including starring in her own reality series, and she's written two books about her experiences of abuse and trauma during those years in the mansion. Molly's lived her life in public from when she was incredibly young and the whole time she's just been so open about her healing. I was lucky enough to meet her around 2017, which was prior to her late stage autism diagnosis, which we talk about in the chat. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm consistently awed by her strength and that clear articulation of her boundaries. I love so much about Holly, but I guess my favorite thing is that she always surprises you. She's kind of like this cosplay bikini babe crime expert. I mean, she's just totally uncategorizable. And wait until you find out who she wants to MC her funeral. She is just the fucking best. (laughs) How do you feel about death and dying? Is it something that comes up on your radar very often? Do you think about it much?
1: I feel like it does. I'm very into like past life regression and anything spiritual. And I live in a haunted house. I love going to haunted places. I love all that kind of stuff. So it's not something I'm weird about or I'm afraid of. I always feel like when it's my turn to go, I hope it's just not painful. I hope I'm old and I'm in like a peaceful, you know, painless setting, but I'm not afraid of death itself. You know, I feel, I feel okay about it. What do you think ghosts are? Do you think they're spirits?
0: Do you think they're energies?
1: I think it could be a couple things. I think it could be, yeah, spirits. I also think it could be like an energetic imprint. Like a lot of times people, when they're in a haunted place, they'll see Like a repeat of something, they call it stone tape theory. It's almost like something in the, whether it be like a brick or a stone or something, it kind of records energy in a way that we don't understand yet. So different people will kind of experience the same thing. Like I could be sitting here in a room and out of the corner of my eye, I would see the same person like walking, you know, at different times, but it's always the person looks the same and it's always the same thing. So people feel like when that kind of phenomena happens, that at least the popular theory is that it's, just some kind of energy imprint that we don't understand yet.
0: I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, I think it's really important to talk about death because it is one experience that we all share. It's a universal Mm -hmm. experience. I keep thinking about that scene in Barbie where she says, do you guys ever think about dying? Yeah. (laughs) Do you think people underestimate you as a, you know, former Playboy model? Do you think people dismiss you in a way that is to their own detriment.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people want to disqualify, you know, both men and women, they just want to disqualify other people so they can feel better than other people. And I think, uh, kind of lowest common denominator, easy way to disqualify somebody is to look for anything that could be kind of put in the slut shaming category or anything like that. I think it's just some people's easy way to like somebody beneath them. There's so much.
0: I mean, there's so much we could talk. There's so much we could talk about in terms of your life growing up in public, uh in the Playboy mansion, on television. And I would say at this stage, your life has probably been more in the public eye than not. Does that feel true to you?
1: Yeah, I think so. Even when I moved into the mansion, I didn't really like I wanted to get into the entertainment industry, but I didn't think anyone would really care that I was there. You know, there were six other blondes living at the house, countless other playmates. And I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll make something of myself and people will, when they look back at my story, this will be a little piece of it, a little curiosity at the beginning, kind of this crazy thing I did in college. But I was surprised at how quickly just living at the house and being one of his girlfriends like became my identity in everyone else's eyes. And that kind of became this really daunting thing. So even before the TV show started, I feel like I was under a microscope a little bit. And that all started when I was 22 and I'm 44 now. So it's been like the perfect halfway point of my life. (laughs) You talked about how happy you
0: are for Britney Spears to be doing her own thing in public Mm -hmm. and kind of be slightly liberated from who we expected her to be. And how do you think women in the public eye are held in terms of that perception? So people go, that's well, kind of like what you were saying, that's Holly, she lived in the Playboy Mansion, that's who she is. Do you feel like it's been tough for you to break out from that perception?
1: Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, I feel like not only public perception, but an industry perception too. You know, people don't want to hire you for roles or things if you're so synonymous with something else. Or I feel like I was considered so brand unfriendly for the longest time because I was so synonymous with another brand, which happens to be like an adult brand that sometimes people don't want to be involved with. So it definitely was more than what I bargained for as far as, you know, not being really a great start in the industry. Of course, I've managed to like make lemonade out of lemons and like make something of it for myself, but it really wasn't helpful in the way I thought it would be, or that maybe other people would assume, you know, a casting director wants to feel like they're making their own discovery. They don't want to pick somebody who's like, thought of as a kept woman and synonymous with a controversial brand.
0: I mean, what I love about you, apart from myriad things, is that you do contain Mm -hmm. multitudes. I mean, you've got that, you said adult industry, but there's such a beautiful sense of, and I mean this in a beautiful way, that childlike, your love of Disneyland, dressing (laughs) up and all all that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff coexists within you, which is so great. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to talk about your dream funeral over the Mm -hmm. course of this chat. We'll ease our way into it. What makes a good funeral, do you think?
1: You know, I haven't been to too many. The most recent one I went to was when I was married. My mother-in-law passed away and my husband, my ex-husband, he throws events. So he was able to do this really cool thing at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery that was very much like a party and a gathering. And it's what his mom would have wanted. You know, she loved his festival. She loved being the center of attention. So it was so perfect for her. I'm kind of the opposite. When I think about my own funeral, when I think about my own funeral, it makes me kind of like embarrassed. Like it's one of those things that's like embarrassing for no reason. Like, Oh my God. Like I, even though I won't be around to experience it, it's like, Oh, I don't want all this attention right now. Like I just want it to be this little small thing with just like the closest people in my life and whatever's meaningful to them. I don't even want like, A traditional service where people feel like they have to get up and speak if they don't want to. I would love, I do want to be buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I would like a really cool headstone and something that's kind of fun for people to visit if they're interested in me or know anything about me. There's a woman who played Vampira, her name is Mila Nurmi. She's buried at Hollywood Forever and her headstone is so cute. It's a little caricature of her as Vampira engraved on there and people go to her grave and they leave little trinkets and little vampire teeth and stuff and it's so cute. And I love stuff like that. But as far as the actual gathering when I think about it, I feel like, oh, that's so embarrassing. Like I don't want a big deal. (laughs) What about, I mean, maybe your spirit's going to be there
0: speaking of ghosts as well. So maybe you will be there, but you won't be there.
1: Even more embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it's embarrassing to me. It's a perfect example of things that are embarrassing for no reason.
0: You talked about your mother in law. You know, she loved being the center of attention and Mm -hmm. she would have loved. Often they say about funerals, the saddest thing is that the person who would have enjoyed it the most is the person who can't be there, which is a case for for why we should celebrate people while they're alive. Absolutely. Just speaking about that embarrassment, do you get embarrassed at like birthday parties or being the center of attention in terms of? That...
1: I feel like it's been so long since I've had a traditional birthday party. It's usually something more low key, just with loved ones. That's usually what I prefer. I'm trying to think the last time. Last time I had like a public birthday party was probably like around you know eleven or twelve years ago. I was filming for my show at the time. It was like at a big nightclub in Vegas, so that was kind of fun. I was used to doing stuff like that at the time. That was back when like people would be booked and paid a ton of money for like random nightclub appearances. So I was kind of doing that once a month anyway, and this was. Just like the birthday version, so that didn't feel weird. But I definitely, it's not something I need in my life now. I prefer like just a small gathering or just like a day doing something fun with loved ones.
0: Introverted extroverts represent. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I see you. You and I met actually in 2017, mm-hmm. which was the year Hefner died. And don't worry, mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about him much because fuck that <laughs> fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> we had lunch not long after he died. And I remember like, because I'm an earnest little dude, I'm like, Holly, are mm-hmm. you okay? Like, do you want to talk yeah. about Like And you are like, yeah, I'm fine. But- you feel like you copped a lot of public criticism for people saying, why didn't you show more emotion when you were like mourning? Mm -hmm. Like, why didn't you offer a giant gesture of mourning? And you've spoken like, I think quite eloquently about that. How did it feel for you? processing that in your own way and then people expecting you to grieve in a public way.
1: Well, at the time, you know, Instagram was the dominant form of social media and everybody expected like an Instagram post because people love to do that. Like when celebrities die, if they're a fan of that celebrity or if they knew them well, or even if they just had like a passing encounter and took one photo with them, people like to post as if they Knew that person so well, and oh my God, what a loss! Which is nothing wrong with that. It's nice, but then it becomes this kind of weird, expected thing that people are expected to do. And I think it's so strange because I'm very much somebody who will mourn in private. Like, even recently, I had a dog get hit by a car and passed away. And even though the dog used to be very much a part of my social media, I just didn't say anything about the dog until years later. Because for me, it's just easier to talk about after there's more time and distance and you're not really in that sad place anymore. Not that there's anything wrong with other people do this, but I'm not the type of person that's going to grab my phone and like cry in a TikTok video. You know, I mean, people do that. And I think it's great that people are willing to share, but it's just not really my style. I'd rather like sit there and kind of process it and figure it out on my own first. And, you know, when Hef passed away, I didn't really have much as far as feelings about it. I feel like with our relationship, when I broke it off with him, it was because I'd really found out that he wasn't the person he was presenting himself to be for me. And it's kind of the same feeling you get when you find out like a friend has really like fucked you over behind your back or was telling lies or was causing problems between you and other people. And sometimes you have to find out about it a couple of times to really accept it. But once you realize that it's like, it's kind of a mind fuck. Like you go back and you think, okay, Everything this person ever told me that I accepted as truth is now in question because I know they're a liar now. And they, you just realize that that person who you thought they were never really existed. You kind of had this wrong idea. So when he passed away, it, it was almost like a non-entity to me because the person I used to be in love with never really existed. That was just kind of a mess of like what I wanted him to be and what he was trying to convince me he was and things like that. So when he passed away, it didn't mean anything to me. You know, he was very much older. I knew it was coming soon. I and I just I hadn't been in touch with him for years and years. But I think people, even though I'd already written my book and talked about how I felt about him and that had been released a few years prior, I think people just expected me to jump on and do like this Big social media eulogy. And it's like, that is not going to happen. And it's also weird to me because, yeah, I didn't have feelings about his death, but what if I had? Like, what if I was really going through it and really suffering, and people are like, the angry social media mob with their pitchforks and torches. Like, you need to post now. What's wrong with you? And it's just gross, I feel like. I don't think anybody should be expected to do that. I feel like if I lost a family member or somebody really close to me, the last thing I would want to do is run to social media. And I'm not judging people when they do that. That's a very valid way of processing things or like paying tribute to a loved one. But I feel like I wouldn't even be in a good headspace for years to be able to even think about what I would want to say or think about, you know, what would be appropriate.
0: I read this story recently about a famous soccer coach, which is clearly out of my realm of expertise already, but he announced that he was dying of, I think, pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And one of his ex-partners from years ago, who obviously had a tumultuous relationship with him, did a post where she said, not a good person oh while he was still alive she was like she was like you all expect me to say something I'm not gonna say anything because yeah. he wasn't a good person which unfortunately she deleted but I was like that's fucking great that you feel like she wasn't gonna wallpaper over their relationship he obviously caused her a lot of pain mm-hmm. and I thought that was kind of her speaking her truth which was really bold.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so weird that people expect a certain reaction and that your reaction to something like that has to conform. It's so strange to me. Have you written a will? I do have one. Yeah, um, when I had kids, I did all
0: that. How did it feel writing a will? Does it feel like, does it make death feel more real?
1: Not really. It just kind of felt like a relief because it made me feel like everything would be in good hands. Everything would go to my kids. A lot of my stuff has been in a trust for my kids for the past I mean, my youngest is seven, so for that long. And I just like knowing that everything's kind of in place and that they won't have to be bothered with, you know, kind of sorting through that, everything's done. So for me, it felt more like a relief and I was happy to be doing it.
0: I think it's such an important symbolism and ritual in grief is so important. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, what do you think constitutes a good death?
1: I think an ideal death would not be being in pain, knowing far enough in advance, you were going to die that you got to fit in your bucket list things that you hadn't done yet and spend time with your loved ones and kind of tie up loose ends. I think that would be ideal and preferably at an old age. Do you have a bucket list of I mean, you've accomplished a lot. What more do you want to do? Every year I come up with new goals. I just last month finished my vision board for this year. I mean. I want to go to Scotland as far as travel goes. There's different like career goals and things like that. I don't necessarily love sharing them though because I feel like the pressure's on. Like people are always like, when I talk about my vision board, oh, I want to see it. Can we see it? Can we see everything you put on there? I'm like, no, because there's so much pressure. Like if I don't finish it by the end of the year, then it's like, you don't need to know. (laughs) I love hearing that and
0: also hearing you protecting yourself like when your dog died or when Hef died and, and feeling because you are someone that people would see from the outset who, you know, you make TikToks, you make Instagram, mm-hmm. you, you live a very public life. I think it's really beautiful that you've clearly got these internal boundaries where you're like, but not that, that's mine, the vision board is mine, when I'm mourning, that's mine. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something that you have to deliberately choose? You, you know where those lines are.
1: Absolutely. I think that's so helpful. You know, during the pandemic, I started a YouTube and a TikTok and I feel like making that kind of content was the first time I was ever really able to be like authentic and like the real me in front of camera and really connect with people. But I do have really strong boundaries with like the things you listed and also my kids. I'll talk a little bit about what my kids are doing or what my experience is. Or sometimes I'll post a picture of like activities we're doing. You'll see like the back of their heads or maybe their hands or something, but I won't ever show their faces. I won't ever give out any information as far as like, I split my time between two cities. I won't even tell people like the dominant city that they're in or where they go to school or anything like that. I keep them so private. I used to post pictures of them when they were really little, but around the time they got to be about preschool age, that just didn't feel like the right thing for me anymore. I didn't really feel as safe because, you know, they're out in the world a little bit now, you know, they're at school. I'm not with them all the time. So No more pictures of the kids and I'm just very fiercely protective of them. So I think especially if you want to put yourself out there on social media and be as authentic as you can, it definitely helps to have those boundaries drawn in the sand. So you can be like, okay, everything but that one of the joys in
0: getting to know you both, your public output, like you said, as a podcaster and YouTube and maker and writer, I think you're a woman who has something really important to say, given your lived experience, is that you've been learning about yourself in real time. You talked about being Mm -hmm. in the mansion at 22 and now you're 44. You were diagnosed, I would say, quite late in life, probably not late in life for women because there's (laughs) a delay in in diagnosis as neurodivergent. And I think that diagnosis has given you a language in which to really articulate things that people were criticizing you for in the past in terms of like lack of eye contact or things that you were finding complex. Do you wish that you'd known all those things about yourself sooner, including the introversion and stuff like that? Do you wish that you'd known that beforehand? I think
1: it would have been incredibly helpful, but I can't even imagine how different my life would look now. I mean, if I would have known that about myself in my 20s, I probably would have been adjusting my behavior even more. Like, I mean, autistics always tend to mask as much as they can to like fit in, and I learned to do that. I think the most like the first time I was really successful at it was when I was working at Hooters before I moved into the mansion because they kind of give you not a literal script, but they kind of give you like a vague script of how you're supposed to act as a waitress at that restaurant. And of course, as you're serving tables, there's only like certain things you would say to a table you're serving or certain limited amount of time you'd spend at each table. So it was a very easy thing to master. But I think if I would have known I was neurodivergent and caught onto the fact that I'm not really making eye contact or my face isn't as expressive as people would like, I I feel like my life would have been so different. Like I might've succeeded at things I wanted to do But because I didn't succeed at those things when I was in my 20s, it led me down this other path, which in the end, you know, maybe it wasn't always pleasant the whole way through, but it's been very rewarding in the end. So I can't really say I changed that, but I think I would have tackled life very differently had I known. So we're going to go back to your funeral.
0: So Holly Madison's died. We're all very sad. And you've talked a little bit about your funeral plan, which I think is really interesting, is that you, you find it embarrassing that there'd be a, mm-hmm. you know a big thing. But do we have like, what's the funeral? Is it going to be church? Is it Vegas? Is it Disneyland? Like, where do you think your funeral will take place?
1: Well, if somebody would let me have the first ever funeral at Disneyland, I would jump on that but i don't think that's a thing so (laughs) i want to be buried at hollywood forever cemetery i love that cemetery i mean i love vegas vegas is my hometown but there's no interesting cemeteries here i love a beautiful cemetery i'm kind of a cemetery tourist and that one in hollywood it's very beautiful there's like a lake there's all these really interesting headstones a lot of interesting people buried there so it's definitely where i want to be And I don't even want like they have a chapel on the grounds, but I don't even want a service like that. I just kind of want something quick. I mean, people can linger as long as they want, but like a picnic around my gravesite would be cute. Something happy. (laughs) I used to go when we lived closer. I used to take the kids there all the time because their grandmother's buried there and she has a big statue there and everything. So. I would take them for picnics and stuff. And you want to know something gross? Somebody actually took pictures of me and my kids there and it was like published in a tabloid. And first of all, I'm so anti pictures of my kids getting out anyway that it makes me angry. I feel like it should be illegal to publish photos of other people's kids unless you have written consent from the parent. And just so foul that somebody would follow me into a cemetery.
0: Yeah, there's no, I mean, in terms of the press being opportunistic, there are no boundaries in terms of when they take photos yeah of people. and I know you get papped all the time one of my favorite photos is uh leaving a restaurant and I'm behind you and you're getting papped and there's just like my elbow and a part of my scarf and I'm like hey, oh that's, that, that's me getting papped how amazing <laughs> um, can I just go back to if you could have your funeral at Disneyland where would it be is there a special spot at Disneyland where, where you would like your funeral to be
1: well, it would have to be at the haunted mansion. Not only because it's on theme, but I just love New Orleans Square. It's my favorite part. That's actually where I got married. I got married in Disneyland. We had New Orleans Square after hours, and it was just really beautiful. That's great too to have your
0: funeral in the same place you married in because that's
1: right. A place of symbolism. That would be amazing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Is there a dream MC for your funeral? If it could be anyone who was master of ceremonies at your funeral, who would it be?
1: Oh, that's a good one. You know what sucks is like anybody I would pick is probably dead. That's okay. Just who would it, who would it be? I would love to have Pee-wee Herman as the MC for my funeral because oh. my son loves Pee-wee Herman and he would make everybody laugh and just everybody would love it
0: that's so interesting I was so devastated when Paul Rubens
1: died girl me too I love him my boyfriend loves him Pee Wee Herman was like my first crush actually when I was really really little and would watch Pee Wee's Playhouse because was so cool and like it kind of makes sense because if you look at like who I've dated it's always been people who like Have a really crazy house or like have built like a really crazy world through their work or whatever. And that was kind of Pee Wee. Like I thought he really had it going on with that playhouse. And my son is seven and he discovered, you know, Pee Wee's big adventure and all that. And he just loves it. And I, was really kind of low-key hoping. Like, I'm not a big celebrity stalker or like trying to meet people, but I was kind of low-key hoping we could meet him. And then when I heard he passed away, I was so crushed.
0: Same. And I found that was so interesting is that he kept, he he knew he was ill for a very long time mm-hmm. and just went, I'm not going to release anything. And it wasn't until, and he died. And that's the sort of first time we all knew he was sick. I guess I'm interested in interrogating that with you for a moment, given mm-hmm. what you've said about public and private it. If you knew that was happening, do you think that was something would be something that you would announce in order to I guess what we miss with Paul not saying that is that we couldn't say we love you and thank you and he missed all of us pouring that love out for him. What do you think that your choice would be in that position?
1: I think I would have made the exact same decision. I'm kind of superstitious in that like if I'm sick, I usually don't say anything publicly until like right after or if you know, some, big accident happens. I don't usually say anything till right after because I'm kind of superstitious in the fact that like, if everybody out there believes you're sick, you're going to get more sick. I know that's crazy, but, but I would kind of do it the same way too, because it's the same way of like being embarrassed about a funeral. I'd be embarrassed to have anybody besides my really close loved ones, like making a fuss over the fact that I was going to die. Like if I'm embarrassed about a funeral, I would be really embarrassed about that. So I don't think I would say anything. (laughs) I would definitely share my experience if I survived it so other people going through it could, you know, feel like they had somebody to relate to or could listen to my story and hear it. But if I knew I was going to die, I probably wouldn't say anything publicly either.
0: Well, I hope that if and when that does happen to you, that you do realise how loved and appreciated you are and that you don't have to wait until that point that people can pour that love and affection out for you. Thank you. You too. Because this podcast, I mean, it is about death and dying, but it's also about living and surviving Mm -hmm. as well, because those things are, are all part of the experience. So I guess I have a question about coping with regrets. Because you've been so generous and open about speaking about some really traumatic moments in your life, Mm -hmm. about living in abusive relationships and about bullying and speaking up to power. And when you look back on some of the unhappier moments in your life, which you have talked about, how do you reconcile them? How do you feel about, about that?
1: I just feel like it was the journey I was supposed to go on. People always ask me, is there anything you would change? And I can't really say there is just because I feel like everything I went through, even though a lot of it was unpleasant and I would definitely never want to do it again. Like if you put my soul back in my body, I would definitely make different choices because I wouldn't want to like relive that. But being where I am now and being able to talk about what I've been through and share that with people and, you know, my life is great now. I feel like I've done a really good job making a good life out of the direction it went And so I wouldn't really change anything. Sometimes I think I wish I would have been able to like speak up for myself and advocate for myself more. But then I also think, well, I wouldn't have lasted there. And that'd be the same thing as like never going kind of. So if I was going to pick something really little, that wouldn't be like a huge butterfly effect in my life that I could do, it'd be take more pictures because I love having receipts, collect more evidence. (laughs) I mean, I did a pretty good job. Like I have... I took so many pictures there on my little disposable camera and I have like scrapbooks and scrapbooks of things. But still, even as Bridget and I go through on our podcast talking about things we did and things behind the scenes, I still wish I had even more just to share with people. So that's a little thing I would change.
0: But that's interesting. You said as evidence and not as as memories. So what you're saying is that you want proof as opposed to things to look back on
1: fondly, right? 100% 100% because there's so many people from the day I came out with my story, just all these playboy loyalist people who want to accuse me of lying. And I have a lot of evidence, but I wish I had even more. How do you feel about, I mean,
0: do you like, I mean, not, maybe not lie awake at night, but do you think of ways to, do you just go, fuck it? You don't believe me. That's your problem. Or do you keep generating and churning ways that you wish that you could prove that it was true?
1: I think people who really listen to my story understand that it was true. I don't think it's necessarily people in the general public that are like, Oh, she's lying. It's just these people who are still like stuck, who are involved in the playboy world. And they're still stuck in that cult mentality, or maybe they didn't have the same experience as me. And they still so identify with like the idea that they were a playmate 20 years ago. And like, that was their glory days, which is fine. But they can't even tolerate somebody else coming out and saying some, that they had a bad experience because they think it like reflects poorly on the one thing they identify so much with. And I just think it's so gross. And so many playmates, even who are older than me, and I kind of have this mistaken way of thinking, you know, that when people are older, they should be wiser about this kind of thing. But so it's just really disappointing that people aren't.
0: And it's so dismissive as well to say, "Well, mm-hmm. that was my experience, so no one else's could be any different." Like we have to exactly. hold, hold that space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're we're gathered in the haunted mansion at, at Disneyland to celebrate the life and death of Holly Madison with, <laughs> with with Peewee Herman, MC. Yeah. Oh my god,
1: that would be amazing.
0: We've already said it's a small, very small gathering mm-hmm. of family and friends. Very no fuss. Is there a dress code?
1: No why not? You're such a sartorially elegant woman. Well, I really love a theme. So I would love it if people dressed up, but I just think the funerals more for like who's left around and I want everybody to be comfortable and having fun. That was one thing about my wedding too, when we did it is it was like, most people don't have a lot of fun at weddings necessarily. Like they go to other people's weddings and they think it's a chore, but this one was like fun. Like we had some rides open, like we had a show going, we had all these fun food tables. Like I genuinely think it was a rare moment where people got to go to a wedding and they actually had fun and <laughs> it didn't just feel like an obligation.
0: Did you have fun? Cause that's often the thing when you organize things, mm-hmm. you're the one stressing out all the day. Do you, did you have fun at your wedding? I definitely had
1: fun. I do regret. I didn't get to eat As much as I wanted to though. Right? Your wedding looked fun. It looked so fun. It was so fun, but I planned
0: that menu meticulously and I was so excited. I didn't, I ate two things. That was the only thing I regret.
1: You don't have time to eat, especially if you do like an outfit change or something. And we had like this whole like gourmet grilled cheese table. There were like all these different themed tables of like really fun food. So I think I had a little bit of cake, but that was all I got.
0: You're such a prolific and interesting podcaster. And, you know, you talked about there's such an unfiltered element. It's it's you and your power. You've got the microphone. No one's managing you. No one's dictating what you should say. Do you feel like part of inhabiting that space was because you didn't have a voice, your own voice for so long, and there's a power to you being able to express yourself the way you want?
1: like I would have never done a podcast if it had been under anyone else's control. I edit the whole thing. It's very important to me to have that control from start to finish and just be sure that it's Bridget's and my authentic voices. She always listens to it when I'm done with it and I make sure she approves it too. And, you know, we're just real proud of it. And it's so nice to be able to say what we're really thinking and really get across what we want to get across. We're nearly at time, so I'm going to go through a few more funeral questions. Oh, that was fast.
0: <laughs> what song or songs do you want played at your funeral?
1: Well, if it was in Disneyland, it would have to be like all Disneyland theme songs, like all the songs from Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, and. Stuff like that. If it wasn't at Disneyland, I think what I like um, is Al Boley. He was an old singer from the 30s and probably the song people would be most familiar with is one called Midnight, the Stars and You. It was the song that's played at the end of The Shining when they're looking at that black and white picture of Jack Nicholson and all the guests at the Overlook. And it's just a very like, like, I love that era. I love 1940s music, 1930s music, but it's a very like, not only is it like Hollywood retro throwback, which I love that whole era and that whole style, but there's something about that music that's very eerie too. I don't know if it's just like the shining connection. They also would play it in the lobby of, Tower of Terror at Disneyland. It's kind of this echoey, like eerie, like you're in this like old Hollywood ghost world. So I feel like that's probably what I want playing at my funeral.
0: And now I've got this amazing picture in my head of Pee Wee Herman standing somberly next to your coffin as that kind of amazing song echoes through. Yeah, or it's a small world as the coffin slowly starts going right. down. <laughs> <It's> so funny. <laughs> do you know? Do you want to be? You want to be buried or cremated? You want to be buried in Hollywood.
1: Cemetery. Yeah, I want to be buried, but I want my ashes buried because just the thought of my body laying there decomposing is really creepy to me. I'd rather just cut to the chase. I really
0: hear you that you said at the start, you just don't want to fuss. I find it really beautifully and engaging that you find the idea of your funeral <laughs> embarrassing. So embarrassing. Who do you think will deliver your
1: eulogy? I mean, probably one of my kids, I would think. That's really, that's beautiful as well. I don't know who my age or older will be left. So it's hard to say, but probably my kids. Do you think there's going to be a wake?
0: And if so, I mean, I feel like we're at Disneyland now. I usually ask Mm -hmm. people, is there a food and beverage
1: service? Yeah.
0: What sort of food is served? Is it the same as your wedding? Is there like a cheese table and cake?
1: Yeah, I would love fun gourmet versions of like childhood comfort foods. I think that'd be fun. And finally, you spoke
0: about, vampire's grave and people leaving little trinkets and stuff like that. So I guess this is a two-part question. So we've got your beautiful tombstone mm-hmm. in Hollywood where your ashes are buried and people can come and visit it. So my two-part question is what what is written on your tombstone? What is your epitaph? And, and what sort of things would it please you to have people come and leave on your grave?
1: Well, other than name and date, I would just like it if it said Beloved Mother Hopefully my kids feel that way about me. And as far as like headstone, I think if I were to kind of copy a headstone that exists, I love Jane Mansfield has a headstone. She has two actually where she's buried. There's like a giant heart one, but she has like a, for some reason, she also has a headstone in Hollywood forever, even though she's not buried there, which is weird, but it's a pink marble headstone with like hearts engraved on it. It's very like hyper feminine coquette. So I would really love that. And as far as trinkets, I'd love it if people left like little My Little Ponies and or little Disney toys, things like that.
0: Holly, that's uh, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, you're always so open and generous and I couldn't be more grateful. I think you're the most extraordinary human being. I know how much you've fucking been you through too. and survived in your life. And sharing any time in the world with you is a real joy. So from my heart to yours, thank you so much for making this time. And I'm so glad we're alive at the same time.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Like this was so much fun. It went by so fast. It was so amazing catching up. It's amazing. All you need to do is talk about the fact
0: we're all going to die. And time flies. I know. Totally. Talking to Holly Madison about her funeral, I can't even believe I get to say that sentence out loud. It's so fucking cool. I think not least is that I barely even got time to ask her all my set questions. She was just right in there with all the details. She'd already given so much thought to the fact she was going to die and how she wants to die and what she wants the funeral to look like. I mean, this woman has just lived a life and even with everything she's gone through, she's so generous and open and unguarded and non-cynical in a way that's slightly unexpected given some of the body blows she's copped in her life. I'm really glad to have spoken to her that she's alive. I love her. Having conversations about grief can really stir up some unexpected feelings. So if anything's arisen for you today as a result of something you've heard, please look after yourself. I fully acknowledge it's a privilege to talk about mortality in this way and there are so many specific resources available as part of the show notes, so look them up. Check in on how you're feeling internally, call a friend, take a walk, pat a dog, just trust yourself. It really would mean a lot if you consider supporting the show in whatever way you can. You do you, babe. You can subscribe to Marie Hardy is going to die on Patreon and signing up means you'll have a monthly newsletter, writing updates, Q and A. There's a whole community on there of people that I just adore. So please join this wild and weird podcast is made by me, Marie, Josephine Hardy, and a team of fully golden hearts, Sammy Peterson, Darren scarce, Camilla McEwen, Eamon Leggett, and Lauren Egan. Our beautiful podcast theme music is by my dear friend, Lord Fascinator. And I'd like to give special thanks to James Milsom and Amelia Chappellow.